0: Welcome back to Empowered RX. We are the mentorship program and community that helps women who have had their lives disrupted by trauma to reclaim their health and step into their power. At Empowered RX, we believe in the transformative and healing power of fitness, nutrition, and mindset. We're here to give you actionable tips and resources that will help you get back on track and reach your goals. We are here to help you turn your struggles into strengths so that you can be so strong, so healthy, and so empowered. Welcome back to RX. We are the mentorship program that helps women who have had their health disrupted by trauma to overcome their obstacles and turn their struggles into strengths. Today I'm here with Jennifer Storm, who is a victim's rights expert and an author of over five books. Jennifer, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, I'm excited. So for those of you who don't know Jennifer, she has just republished her book, Blackout Girl. Uh, She's been in the victim's rights advocacy sphere for about two decades and she has overcome a whole lot herself as a trauma survivor. So we're really honored to have her here today. And Jennifer, what I think I would love for you to do is tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's a lot, right? So I was a child victim of rape, and it was this you know, incredibly intrusive and traumatic experience that I had. And this happened in the 80s. And so we weren't talking about anything (laughs) in the 80s right we didn't have these conversations parents weren't educating children we didn't see these things as stories in in, on tv because let's face it in the 80s all we had was tv and radio right Mm -hmm. and so I had no real framework with which to cope and my parents were both um abused as children Mm. and my father had PTSD from Vietnam. And so they both kind of used substances in their own way. They weren't addicts or alcoholics, but the rest of our entire family was. Mm. And so they were ill-equipped. So we were all kind of incredibly dysfunctional in the way that we responded to this horrific incident. And I think my parents additionally couldn't address my trauma because my trauma was a trigger for their own trauma. Mm. And they didn't know that at the time, I think probably all they knew was like, this is really uncomfortable. I'm all of a sudden having really uncomfortable stuff. We're just going to pretend like nothing happened. Right. And so we all just kind of went about our way, Mm -hmm. but that's not how trauma works. You can't just pretend it away. You can't pretend like it didn't happen. And so I began cutting, I began drinking, I turned to anything that would help me escape this like catechism of emotion that I was experiencing. And so that led me down like a really dysfunctional path. I ended up hospitalized. I ended up um, in a deep addiction at an early age, I was 12 years old. Mm. And so from ages 12 to 22 for about 10 years, I was just steeped thick in this addiction. a coping mechanism. And unfortunately, of course, through that time, I was raped two more times, which is Mm -hmm. not uncommon, right? We know that individuals who are sexually assaulted, it's it's oftentimes not just once. Um, Also being in environments where I was constantly black out and heavily intoxicated, you know that's that's a prime opportunity for a rapist, right? So, you know, unfortunately, I had t- another incident where I was um, I was raped while I was completely blacked out, and then I had more of a forcible experience at age fifteen, and so all I did with that trauma was I just kept pushing it down. I kept pretending like it didn't happen, and the best way to do that was by using drugs and alcohol. And I, you know, it was pretty dysfunctional. A lot of stuff happened. As you know, it was enough to fill a book. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And my book is titled Blackout Girl because that's who I was. I drank in excess. The minute I picked up one, I picked up 20. And it was never about, oh, I'm just going to go out and have a beer. I don't even know what that's like for people. It must be lovely. I don't know. But mine was like, oh, how many of these can get me to the point where I'm not dealing anymore Mm -hmm. and I don't have to think. And I certainly don't have to feel this stuff that's coming up for me. And so, you know, that led me into, alcohol was my primary use, but then cocaine became this great enabler because it allowed me, you know, I blacked out a lot, hence the title of book. And so when I found cocaine, it allowed me to not black out. And really the motivator for me to use cocaine was to stop being raped, like because I would black out and then people would, would do things to me that I didn't consent to that. I I would wake up the next day and I would have no memory of what was happening. So the cocaine actually was a survival mechanism Mm -hmm. to protect my body. Mm. And so that became a horrible you know, combination. And so I became a a crack addicted person at 17 years old and I almost died. I almost died at age 22 from a, um, a brutal suicide attempt because I, didn't think that I could get help and I couldn't, you know, when you have that much trauma and you're running from it, you can only run for so long. And at some point it's going to, it's just going to collapse onto you. Mm -hmm. And that's what ended up happening one night. It just all came collapsing down. And I was also in my twenties, which we know cognitively, when you enter your twenties, your brain starts to you know get that executive executive functioning, and so you start to remember things that maybe you repressed mm-hmm. and it it makes it harder to keep pushing all those traumatic experiences down and so I almost died and thank, thankfully that did not happen and I woke up and I went to treatment and I started to you know walk this path of recovery and healing from my trauma and so That led me to college, which then led me to a career in victim services. I didn't know that victim advocates existed. That that wasn't a field that I learned about in college. It certainly wasn't anything I had in the 80s. And so when I learned that there was this incredible field of people who helped other people who were harmed by crime, I was addicted. And so I spent 20 years working in victim services in in two different agencies, one very front-end oriented, going out, responding to the direct incident. And then the last seven years, I was appointed by the governor to a position called the Commonwealth Addictive Advocate in Pennsylvania. And I did a lot of legislation and lobbying and post-sentencing work. So that's been the bulk of, of my career, has been just uh, helping other survivors find their voice, navigate a, you know, a confusing justice system, and to try to make the world a little bit better for survivors.
0: Well... Thank you so much for sharing all of that. There are so many amazing details that I want to talk about and dive into, but what an amazing and resilient life you've led. And not only are you resilient, but you've used your experiences to then drive your passion of helping other people and serving the world. So I think that's so beautiful. Um, Similarly, I was assaulted, went through the court system. It was the court system itself was a traumatic event. I was treated Mm -hmm. poorly it was horrific. I still have you know, anxiety about it today, years later. Um, but I can relate to so many parts of your story. Instead of the victim's rights advocacy though, I've gone in the health and fitness route where I'm helping survivors to put their health back together. Because yeah. as you talked about a little bit, trauma is insidious and it kind of seeps into every aspect of our life, whether we realize it or not and it's compounding. So talk to me a little bit about the cumulative effects of trauma over time.
1: Oh my God. Right. Yeah. And and so eating disorders were obviously another big thing for me as I was, as I was dealing with this trauma. Here's what happens when, when you're traumatized, the first overwhelming sense of emotion that you experience is that biological response of shame Mm -hmm. And most people don't even know that it's actually a biological thing that happens in your brain Mm -hmm. that produces shame. Most people just think, Oh, it's this feeling that I shouldn't have, but I have it. And I, and I should just be able to get rid of it. When in reality it's your brain responding to this horrific traumatic experience that you had.
0: We're just going to be taking a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to hear more from Jennifer storm about why so many trauma survivors experience shame, And why it's actually not your fault, but something that the brain does to protect us.
1: Here's what happens when when you're traumatized. The first overwhelming sense of emotion that you experience is that biological response of shame. Mm-hmm. And most people don't even know that it's actually a biological thing that happens in your brain mm-hmm. that produces shame. Most people just think, oh, it's this feeling that I shouldn't have, but I have it and I, and I should just be able to get rid of it. When in reality, it's your brain responding to this horrific traumatic experience that you had. And so, especially for for those of us who have endured um, trespass on our bodies, Mm -hmm. that gets exacerbated and that shame then becomes this reverse mirror of, you know, we look at ourselves differently and um, it hurts to look at ourselves and we are incredibly critical and judgmental and that oftentimes spills into how we eat, how we treat our body in terms of fitness, sexual activity, all of that, right? So there's a ton of health issues around um, experiencing trauma, anxiety disorders are incredibly common. I mean, I had PTSD for 10 years and had no idea, right? I had insomnia. I, I had rage, like significant rage that, you know, I would just emotionally vomit on people for what appeared to be no reason at all. But really it was the, the trauma turmoil mm-hmm. in my body and I didn't know how to articulate anything else. And, um, and I was justifiably angry, right? So there's, you know, depression is another significant health issue that survivors face because, you know, let's just break it down. It's, it's a horribly sad thing to have somebody violate you, to, to have your trust taken, to have that trespass, because it's not just on your body. It's your mind, your spirit, your soul. Mm-hmm. Um, I've often said that like sexual violence, it, it changes your DNA, Mm -hmm. It, it really does it penetrates on a cellular level and it i believe it structurally changes your dna and all of these health issues then are a growth spurt out of that traumatic experience you know some like i said ptsd is an extreme um there are all kinds of other uh disorders whether it is um the one with the R is escaping me, rheumatoid arthritis, but mm-hmm. there's another one um, that is really common among trauma survivors. And for some reason, it's just escaping me, but um, fibromyalgia. It shows up. Yeah. fibromyalgia. Thank yeah. you. Mm-hmm. Yes. It, you know, it shows up in different ways for different people. And so without proper intervention, without healthy coping mechanisms to counterbalance what's happening biologically and chemically, physiologically in our body, you know, we're taking time bombs.
0: Absolutely. And I think one of the hardest parts is that I think it's 86% of women have experienced a traumatic event. Mm -hmm. Only about 5% will actually seek help for that. And then out of that percentage, the amount that get help for their, their health that is with a professional that understands trauma and all the implications is even a a lower percentage. So tell me like, what, what was it like navigating treatment um, was it a trauma informed approach that you experienced from the beginning, or was it kind of you trying to navigate it without understanding? Because I hear a lot of women talk about not ever hearing of trauma informed information and not even understanding it as a concept.
1: So, trauma informed, and I'm putting air quotes for those of you know, everyone that's listening, is this kind of new term that has just been introduced if you will in, in mainstream media and, and it's well intended and it's important because everything we do should be trauma-informed right when I went to treatment in the 1980 in 1987 there was nothing there was no trauma-informed care mm-hmm. the problem is is that it's now 2021 and there truly is very little access to trauma-informed care today it hasn't changed much
0: mm-hmm. where you
1: do see trauma-informed care is in these really private, high-priced facilities. Mm. And for decades, they've, they've umbrellaed trauma-informed care as we do yoga, we offer massage, there's a hot tub on site. And it was more, we do meditation. And those are really good things to incorporate into overall trauma-informed care, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't getting into the science of healing from Mm -hmm. trauma, right? Mm -hmm. And, And, and the disorders that come from that. And so there, there are some facilities that do now that are really good with like EMDR therapy, right? That are doing cognitive behavioral therapy that are introducing modalities that are very specific to treating trauma, um, but they're usually not readily accessible. They're usually expensive. Uh, It's usually private pay. And let's face it, the majority of people in this society don't have access to quality healthcare, right? They just don't. And the agencies that are free and confidential aren't necessarily funded at the level they need to be to be able to engage these modalities. Or if they are, they've got wait lists that are like months and years long. Mm -hmm. So we have a real disconnect between access, equitable access to Mm -hmm. treatment. And it's deeply problematic because people are suffering. So no, I had to kind of cobble together. Mm. Here's what happened to me. I went to rehab in Pennsylvania. They asked me if I had ever been raped. It was, it was on my assessment. So I give them props for that. But all it meant was I got transferred to the women's unit. So oh. for them, it meant, oh, she can't be around men because she was raped. Little did they know. like First of all, I was gay and I wasn't raped by a woman, but I could have been, right? Like They didn't even ask yeah. any additional questions. It was just like, keep her away from men. And that was it. Um, There were no additional programs applied to me. There were no additional counseling or therapeutic modalities that were part of my treatment plan. And so it wasn't, you know, while we did some trauma work, because every rehab, you know, when when you're moving through those very traditional 12 steps, there's some trauma work in there. It wasn't meaningful or intentional in Mm -hmm. the way that it needs to be. And so when I was in rehab the first night, this girl came in to kind of share her story, which oftentimes happens, right? What's so so important for us to see success stories. Mm -hmm. And so she uttered this phrase that still to this day is the the phrase I use all the time. And that was that her secrets kept her sick. Mm. And for me, it was this light bulb moment of, holy shit, all of this stuff that I've been running from and scared of this person here, who's healthy and beautiful and successful is telling me that that's what's going to liberate me, that I need to start talking about that, that I need to find a way to heal from all of that. And I really made that connection. And then I started to do the work on my own. Um, I started doing a ton of writing because that's where I felt safe at first. Because mm-hmm. uh, trust, as you know, is a huge issue for us. Then I found a therapist um, when I got kind of settled outside of rehab. And then I started really doing that
0: deep work. And, and i have been doing it for 20, almost 24 years. That is amazing. And so kudos to you for navigating a broken healthcare system Mm -hmm. and a broken recovery system, and really being able to have the resiliency to push through because I know how hard it is from personal experience and just from hearing other stories. So proud of you. That is amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Yeah. And so one of the things that you're talking about often is that we kind of have these these uh, secrets that we keep locked inside of us. I always talk about it as being these memories that are stored in the basement of my brain. Like I'd have to really go deep to dig them up, find them and do something with it. And once you dig it up, you don't even always know what yeah. to do with it. Yeah. What was the experience of unpacking all of that like?
1: Messy. Um, it was really messy because like you said, when you're, when you're dealing with trauma brain, and trauma memory traumatic memory it's not linear it's not like a book where you open it and it's like this happened on tuesday and then on thursday this happened no it's like opening a puzzle that has a thousand pieces and i don't know maybe 400 are missing Mm -hmm. (laughs) right Right, and so you're trying to put together this experience and it's it's hard and so i had to learn a couple things writing was really helpful Mm-hmm. Uh, that kind of helped me shape my, my perception. Right. Cause we also have to understand that everybody perceives things differently. Mm. And so I had to realize that my perception of the event had to be my truth until I was told otherwise. Right. And I had to trust that that was okay. Mm. And that's a scary spot, right? Because again, when perception is reality when you're around other people that maybe aren't necessarily helpful, um, or if you're around people that are abusive or harmful, they will try to manipulate their your perception into what they A, want you to remember, or B, just to make it better for you, right? Like there can be gaslighters that are like really dangerous and abusive. And then there's also gaslighters that are helpers, that are disguised as helpers, that yeah. just... They're there for you and they just want you to be okay. They just don't don't talk about it. I just want you to be better. And so they'll try to manipulate without even realizing your perception of what happened just to make it seem like it's okay. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So I had to do a lot of that work on my own. And, you know, when it came to really healing, so I had to do the writing, which was really that cognitive part. And then I had to do the feeling work, Mm -hmm. which was harder much easier for me to write about it because so much of me had learned to be detached from emotion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then I had to find safe spaces where I could conjure up emotion. And in the beginning, Leah, I didn't have really a good cognitive bridge between why I was feeling this emotion And something like cognitive, right? Because, and then I would learn, as I do now know, that the brain literally separates. Trauma separates your left and your right brain. Mm -hmm. So it literally, it disconnects that bridge. And you can't rationalize your feelings. And so I had to allow myself to just feel and get that out. And then in those moments that I was doing that, I had to learn to pick up a pen and start writing down. Okay, what am I thinking mm, when I'm feeling this? And then that helped me make that bridge to say, okay, this grief comes from this experience. Mm. And this pain and this anger is associated with this. Mm. And over time, right, that got easier. And Then in spaces maybe that weren't as safe, where shit was just coming up for me, Mm -hmm. I was able to then identify it and say, oh, oh, I know what that is. And then it took the power out of it. Mm
0: -hmm. So it wasn't
1: as, and this is why we do trauma trigger training with survivors, right? We, we predict and prepare for them because if you know something, if you know the why behind something it it, it disempowers it a little bit. Mm -hmm. Right. So if I'm having like an extreme emotional response to something and I don't know why Mm -hmm. that's 10 times worse than, Oh, I'm really angry. And this is why, right. It it gives you a bit more control. And so for trauma survivors, if we don't do that work, we're just walking around like live wires and we don't understand why. Mm -hmm. And we think we're crazy. Right. It's, especially when you get deep into
0: those panic attacks and those anxiety attacks, the first thing you start to feel is I'm losing my mind. I'm nuts. Absolutely, and I also found going through the court system, I was already challenged with my perception of reality based mm-hmm. on the cop interviewing and the way that I was approached by lawyers and things. And then I yeah. stood up in court and spoke my truth and I was naive to think I would be believed. Mm-hmm. And when I wasn't and I was you know, cross-examined and questioned, my perception started to fall away and I got so confused and I almost felt like I lost myself a little bit. Yeah. And I had tried so hard to build myself up and speak my truth. It took so much courage to then be manipulated in a courtroom in front of everybody. Um, was, it was devastating. It was devastating. What advice can you give for women who are going through the court process and who are facing this perception flip? Yeah.
1: So I'm so sorry, Leah, that that happened to you. And, uh, you know, because the initial trauma is, is horrific enough. And then you go to the helpers and then you get re-traumatized. And unfortunately that is how our justice system has been experienced by far too many sexual assault survivors. Mm-hmm. And and those and that's where I was getting at, like they can be sometimes those gaslighters that I was talking about. Mm-hmm. They could be the prosecutor, they could be the judge, they could be your victim advocate even mm-hmm. in some cases, if you're dealing with a victim advocate or a victim coordinator that's not properly trained. Um, no. And so, yeah, yeah. And, and so then it makes the experience A, so much worse, but it, it is, it's an emotional psychological ma- manipulation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so A, what I would say to any survivor out there is, is B, it's not supposed to be that way. <laughs> um, and and I'm sorry if that was that was the experience you had. And I promise you that there are helpers out there that are trauma informed, that do get it, that will believe you, that will support you. Mm-hmm. Um and that's why historically sexual violence is the most underreported crime, because other survivors see what happens. Other survivors talk. You see the headlines. You see the way survivors are spoken of, and you see the w- the way they're they're treated in the justice system. It's not a friendly place to go. And when the first person you encounter, which is typically law enforcement, is not believing you and is is shaming you and and you know trying to manipulate your memory and your perception, why would you trust and move forward? Um, and so I do think as a system we've gotten better. Um, and you know, the me, the me too movement was a huge help in that. It really was at the same time. We've also are starting to experience like this me too fatigue and backlash. And so we've got to be ever vigilant in in our protection of survivors right now too, because, you know, we're, we're kind of seeing a flip. And so the system is being a little bit more adversarial again, because, you know, there's this fatigue that's been created. Um, and so it's, you know, I would reach out to credible rape crisis organizations, credible victim service organizations, find trauma therapists that actually have the licensure. Um, you know, don't just go off of them telling you they're trauma-informed, look at their licensures, look at what they've practiced, um, you know, what modalities do they operate in, and are they are they credentialed? Um, because so much harm can be
0: done. And then it's, it takes so much more time to repair that harm. Absolutely. And I I remember going through the court process. I was sleeping maybe three to five hours a, a night. I was hypervigilant. My muscles were super tense. I always had a dry throat. My neck muscles hurt, pounding headaches, lack of appetite. I lost like 15 pounds. I just became a walking zombie. My health deteriorated um, luckily I work in the health industry. And so I was able to kind of recognize that and put practices in place. But if I didn't know the health practices or that kind of, you know, behavior modification, then I wouldn't have been able to do that. And I could imagine that you've probably worked with a lot of victims of assault whose health has deteriorated and that can be compounding on trauma as well. Tell me about what you've seen with that.
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, and especially when you're in kind of seminal moments, whether it's a trial or the sentencing phase, or, you know, years later when the offender might be up for release or the initial apprehension of the offender, right? There's all these like pivotal points, the anniversary of the event. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's, you know, it, Trauma shows up in a multitude of ways. And so the best, one of the things that I try to do the most is I talk about trauma. Obviously, if you're on any of my social media channels, that's all I do. I talk about trauma to create awareness of it and then to immediately give coping mechanisms and tips and tools for survivors to know that they're so normal. Like they're having this incredibly normal response to this super abnormal thing that they had experienced Mm -hmm. and had happened to them. And then here's all the different ways that healing is possible um and and it's hard it's interesting like so for me it was the writing and then it was the attaching to emotion and so i have like a whole chapter in my book about this where i had to first like literally set the emotional stage to allow myself to feel Mm. which which sounds probably ridiculous to some people but not um so i had to like i was like okay water i like water so i'm going to take a bath and let let me lower the lights let me let me put candles and then I'm going to just find the saddest music that I can find, right? And I'd put music on. And what I didn't realize at the time, which I do realize now, is that I was, I was bringing all those, I was conjuring all the senses. And usually trauma and trauma triggers are centered around our five senses. What did you see? What did you smell? What did you feel? What did you taste, Right. And those tend to be how we identify our triggers, but they can also be how you heal, right? You dive back into those senses. And so I would kind of create this really sad environment so that I could cry mm. because I never cried in in the 10 years that I was running because I didn't let myself. I didn't let myself grieve. I didn't let myself do that. So I would literally get to this point where I would just, the bathtub became the place that I cried and I would let myself open those floodgates and I would hold myself and I would stay in that bathtub until it was all out of me. And sometimes I cried, sometimes I screamed. Um, And so I, I, over those beginning years, I found those ways to kind of allow myself to feel and then learn what those feelings were about. And it wasn't until I was working as a victim advocate and I was doing a lot of homicide response. And so Mm -hmm. like direct response, going to the scene, then doing, you know, Ah. the, Notification to the families. And I started to realize that not only did I have my own shit, (laughs) I was bringing home a whole, all this other trauma that Mm -hmm. I was experiencing vicariously through working with victims. And I couldn't get it off of me. Like I couldn't find a way to disengage from it. And so I started to run. Yeah. And that was the first time (laughs) I put the kind of physiological and the the exercise piece together. Because mm-hmm. I was like, this stuff feels so ugh, that the only way I can get it out is I'm, I need to hit something. I need to run. Mm-hmm. And when I was younger, I used to hit things a lot. Like I would, and I read about this in Black Girl. I used to hit like my brother's bunk bed until my knuckles were bloody because it was that physical exhaustion. Mm-hmm. And so I started to run. And so I would run every morning for two hours. Um, and it just, it gave me that exhaustion. I'm sorry, two miles, not two hours. Um, it gave me that physical, oh, exhaustion. I know, no two miles. <laughs> um, but it gave me that physical exhaustion that allowed me to process what was going on. Um, and now exercise is a daily staple of my, um, my maintenance, my spiritual maintenance, my self care routine, um, I don't run anymore cause my knees no longer could handle, you know, the pounding of the pavement. So now I'm a, I'm a, a spinner. I cycle because I can still get that same high intensity workout and feeling that I got from running, but mm-hmm. the impact is less. And I do a lot of weight training too. And I call it my synthesizer because I can start a workout in the foulest of moods, like pissed off or upset, or just not wanting to do it. I've never ended a workout feeling worse. I've, always been able to take whatever stuff I was walking into the the gym with or into my workout space. And Mm -hmm. I've been able to synthesize those emotions into a place of productivity for myself.
0: I can relate to that so much. When I was assaulted, I picked up running and I would literally run until I couldn't feel the anxiety anymore. Mm -hmm. So it would just be hitting the pavement till I couldn't feel And I would have this clear state of mind and that's actually what got me into this field in the first place. And I didn't find out till years later that the reason behind why high intensity interval training is so appealing to people who have been through this stuff is it actually helps us return back to a healthy window of tolerance when we've been so used to living outside of it. Yep. Um, There's a nervous system adaptation that occurs when we have to come down from high intensity work. So it's very grounding. It's an extreme release. And it Mm -hmm. also forces you to take care of yourself in other ways with nutrition, mindset, and everything else like that. One of the things that you were talking about is your book. And I'd love to dive into that Mm -hmm. book, Blackout Girl. Um, It moved me to tears multiple times. And I think one of the things that I love so much is that I would imagine that most victims of assault or abuse would be able to read this and connect with it. Um, on some level, tell us about your book Mm -hmm. and just tell us about that journey. Uh,
1: Well, first of all, thank you for bringing me to tears now. (laughs) Um, You know, the whole reason I wrote it was um, because I wasn't finding my story in, in the bookshelves that I was going to. Right. And I was an avid reader when I first kind of got into recovery, I learned by reading. And so I wanted to to put out my experience because I was like, well, I can't be the only person that has gone through all this, and I know I'm not because I just I knew, right? And so I I really wasn't a writer; I was a person with a story that then decided, you know what, this is this is a story that maybe needs to be told. And so I approached Hazleton Publishing mainly because most of the recovery books at the time that i was reading were published by hazelden and so i thought well this is this is a like-minded publisher so maybe they would be interested in doing this and that was also when like this was in 2008 so the mm. memoir genre was really popular at that time and so were addiction memoirs mm-hmm. and most of them were pretty um graphic about their use and really light on their recovery. (laughs) And so I wanted to put a book out that had both, because obviously you've got to tell people the story and you got to pull them into what you went through. Otherwise, you know, the, the recovery side doesn't have, you know, as much, um, weight, right. If you don't, if you don't walk somebody through your hell, how can they know your hope? And so that's what I did. So the book really started off as my personal writing and then turned into a book. and. It was really healing to write. It was really hard to write, but it was healing and it was purposeful. And so I wrote that in 2008 when, which is, Kind of ironic. I, I wrote the book. We had high aspirations, and then the financial crisis happened. <laughs> and so the, kind of, the book industry, along with all industries, kind of tanked. So the book survived, though, and it did really, really well. And it reached, for me, it wasn't about becoming a best selling author. It was about making sure that other people out there who have gone through what I have gone through know that they're not alone mm. and to give them a textbook. And then what, I, what happened was I, I started getting um, communication from all the parents parents of young people who had gone through what I'd gone through and they just, you know, were like thankful that they had this lens with which to understand their own child. And that was super powerful. Because I was like, yes, if I can get parents to understand this a little bit, maybe they can respond better to their kids. And so I wrote a couple other books after that. I wrote a second memoir and then I wrote like a self-help book to walk people through the criminal justice system. Mm Um, but I've always blackout girl for me was, you know, that, I mean, it's my story. So it's obviously I've, I've been training on that book for decades. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of workshops on making those connections between trauma and addiction, because we don't talk about the two of them enough. They're very siloed. Mm -hmm. Um, and so then when the me too movement hit, I was, you know, obviously very much working in the field at the time. And I was elated because we were having these conversations in, at a fever pitch, right? So as an advocate, it was like, oh my God, this is like our Super Bowl. As a survivor, it was like, oh my God, we are exposing wounds all over this country. We were just ripping open people's wounds mm-hmm. because you couldn't escape it. And we're not talking enough about the solution. We were talking about the stats and we were talking and people were We're sharing their stories. It was story after story, after story, after story, and then nothing, right? There was, and still to this day, we haven't shifted that conversation into, okay, now what? Like me too, now what?
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And
1: that's the conversation I want to have. That's, that's where I live. And that's the daily work that I do. So I approached my publisher and I said, Hey, what do you think about re- Um, you know, putting blackout girl out again, I can update it with everything I've learned over the last couple of years. And, you know, so many, so many things that happened, and they were they were down for that. So we we kind of, you know, put it back out, I I updated some chapters, I put a discussion guide in there, put some new statistics. But then I also wrote an accompanying book called awakening blackout girl. Mm. Because I wanted to share with people how I how I heal, And what this looks like for the average survivor in an accessible way. Because what I was finding in these like two decades of of writing and and traveling and speaking is that we're still not making those connections. So, so many people are out there suffering in silence or suffering as they're trying to get help because the help isn't accessible. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, I'll put a book out, you know, books are helpful. People can walk through them. They're very accessible. And so, then, Awakening Blackout Girl came out. So, so they came out during the pandemic. <laughs> So I actually had a person on a podcast was like, can you call my financial advisor the next time you plan on publishing a book? Cause I'm going to buy up a whole bunch of stock or I'm going to sell a <laughs> bunch of stock because apparently like my publication timeline is not great for the economy. <laughs> but um, So so those books came out in the fall and uh, you know, I just recorded the audio version of Blackout Girl, which was super fun. I got uh-huh. to go and, and record it. So that just came out in February. Uh, yeah, but I, there, I, I hope they help. I know they help. I've heard enough. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: And I think it's important because not every person can articulate their experience and that's okay. And, and not everyone certainly is willing and wanting to be public about their experience. And that's what I love about reading. It's this really private experience between you and the the words. Mm -hmm. And you know, it, for me, it's often the first, the front line for people who you don't know, like, how do I resource this person? What do I give them? A book is a great thing to give somebody that you think might be struggling Mm -hmm. because it's not invasive and you don't have to have a conversation with them. You just be like, here's this, or just have it randomly delivered, anonymously delivered to their house. Mm -hmm. And, And then that person can connect with those words in a way that you know, I, I think is hard in talk therapy or in other modalities. So I'm a big fan of of books, as you
0: can tell. Uh, absolutely, yeah. So for our listeners, guys, Blackout Girl or Awakening Blackout Girl by Jennifer Storm. You can find it on Amazon. Get your copy. Send it to a loved one who's struggling. You won't regret it. It's yeah. an amazing, amazing read. Yeah. And your libraries also have them. If you cannot afford a book, please don't have that be a barrier. Every library um, should have my book if they don't ask them and they will order it for you. Awesome. That's a great tip. I love that. Um, One of the things that I had read up about you was that you've been involved in some pretty high profile cases. Do you want to tell us about some of those?
1: Yeah. So, you know, unfortunately in Pennsylvania, which is where I live, we have been the epicenter of a lot of horrific uh, abuse and, and it 's not that we are an anomaly, um, mm-hmm. although sometimes I wonder I think it 's just that we 've exposed successfully exposed some pretty horrific things, and mm-hmm. so it started with the archdiocese um, and the Catholic Church uh, and all of that um, horrific um, cover ups of, of child sexual assault and child rape and then we had the Jerry Sandusky case, mm-hmm. which you know was a massive media circus. And I worked with a lot of those young men and I walked through that trial with them. And I, I've walked through the sentencing and then in the subsequent appeals because there have been so many appeals. And then the Bill Cosby case, which Mm -hmm. was this national case um, that you know nobody could prosecute because of our arbitrary statute limitations which are slowly starting to get eradicated and changed mm-hmm. throughout the country. Not in Pennsylvania yet. We're working on it, but <laughs> um but one of the the victims was from Pennsylvania. And you know, as most people know Bill Cosby was attached to Temple University and had a home here in Pennsylvania and he assaulted a lot of women in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And so thankfully we had a really brave prosecutor who said i'm gonna take this case on even when we had a really bad prosecutor before that one that said i'm not gonna do this and and Mm -hmm. there's a lot of a lot of a lot about that that could be said that i won't say but um uh, you know eventually we became the only entity to prosecute bill cosby and and got a conviction and so he is currently sitting in our our one of our state correctional facilities, and uh, he has served uh, three years now. And um, actually, he's coming up for parole this week. And this month, he's coming up for parole. Um, so yeah, there's been a lot of high profile cases that have come out of Pennsylvania. And then obviously, two or three years ago, we had that massive grand jury report that essentially said, okay, it's not just one diocese here, one diocese here every single diocese in Pennsylvania has covered up child sexual assault and we can prove it and we can take it all the way to the Pope, that the Pope Pope concealed and the Vatican concealed. So it was this massive national case. Um, so yeah, there's, there's been, um, you know, a lot of survivors who have bravely come forward in Pennsylvania Mm -hmm. Um, we've also had some pedophile pediatricians. We've got, um, you know, Sarah Klein, who is this phenomenal, uh, survivor. She was the first known victim of Larry Nasser. She lives here in mm-hmm. Pennsylvania. She's a part of our statute of limitations movement. She now works as a lawyer helping to get justice for other survivors. Wow. So wow. we, so wow. we have these, all of these horrible cases, but we also have this like body of insanely amazing, brave warriors, that have
0: just like become my family. I've, I've got this group of survivors that I lean on daily. I think community is so important to the healing process. And I think you you turned a really an, a negative space with all that trauma into a, a healing space with having all the survivors that unite and use their powers for the greater good. Yep. Um, I always joke around that trauma survivors have superpowers. Yes, um, we are. We're superheroes. Super, super empathetic. Um, yep. Want to help, want to use their passion for the greater good. Tell me a little bit about the importance of community and what it can do for people's health and well being. Yeah. You know, and it's, I write about this in Awakening Blackout
1: Girl because, you know, you need to find your people, mm-hmm. period. And and community support and peer to peer support is so it, it's so important, um, and so we have this group like I talked about this kind of amazing group of survivors, and we have a Facebook group that we we all communicate on, and just the love and support and unconditional stuff that goes on in that group alone is worth engaging, right? Mm -hmm. And thankfully now with with what happened with COVID, so many people have been forced to go online. And so Mm -hmm. there are so many more like private Facebook groups and and other entities where you can go and access support. But Mm -hmm. I mean, for me, it's just showing up in that space. Like I show up in that space all the time to give resources, to provide information and to give support. But I also get so much from them as well. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, and sometimes it 's just a you know love you guys i 'm um, here for you i 'm thinking about you guys, um, or our survivor will just put in there like i 'm really struggling today, and then fifteen messages of like empowerment and support and strength come in, mm-hmm. and it 's how we lift each other up, and you know when one of us falls, we all fall, so we all scoop in and we pick the other one up and we have we've discovered this kind of beautiful mentality where like when one of us achieves achieves a a frank you know a kernel of justice it's justice for all all of us you know what i mean there's like this collective power and it's beautiful and it's complex and sometimes it's hard and we have conflict and that's normal Mm -hmm. um but i think we need to, we need to protect each other and we need to support each other. You know, like I put a post out today cause I, I don't know when this is going to air, but it's March 31st. We're about to walk into the most intense time for sexual assault survivors because it's about to become sexual assault awareness month, right? The month of yeah. April is incredibly intense in its exposure. And you know, your feeds are going to be just <laughs> loaded with sexual assault for the next 30 some days. So mm-hmm. like you know, and for some survivors, that means I'm off social media for the next 30 some days, because it's too much, right? For those of us that are in it and constantly engaging and creating awareness and peeling open our wounds for the world to see, it's exhausting. And mm-hmm. so we've got to be cognizant of that. And we've
0: got to take care of each other and support each other through these times too. I love that. Um, yeah, absolutely. For our listeners, um, we are doing a Sexual Assault Awareness Month, but only on one day, just for that purpose mm. alone. Yeah. So we're observing it on April 21st, um, and we're doing a self-defense clinic in which the funds go to help victims of assault. Um, and so Thank we're you. just hoping to make a difference in the world, but we do recognize how traumatic the month can be, so mm-hmm. we are limiting it to a one-day observance for that purpose alone. But if anyone who's listening is looking for a community, RX community on Facebook is free and it is filled with resources on how to get your health back and how to find help and just support whenever you need it. So you can join that if you're curious about that. And then Jennifer, why don't you tell us where we can find you, your information, all of that.
1: Yes, I am heavily engaged on social media. Literally, I go on daily. Mm-hmm. And so, just because I, I think it's such a great space to connect, I respond to every single message someone sends me. So, please don't hesitate to reach out on Instagram. It's storm119 119 happens to be my sobriety date. So, that's the 119. Mm-hmm. And then on Facebook, it's just Jennifer Storm author. And on Twitter, it's just my name, Jennifer our storm. And so, you know, Instagram is where I tend to live the most, but I'm on Facebook and Twitter every day, all day. So, um, yeah, please connect with me and follow me. I do a lot of Facebook lives and Instagram lives, and I try to just put out inspiration and support every day because I, that's what I need. And I, you know, it, it's interesting every time I, I think to myself, why am I doing this? Like, why am I post-? like, I'm not like a influencer or any one of those people. It's like, why am I doing this? And then somebody will be like, this is exactly what I needed to hear today. Thank you. And then I'm like, that's why I'm doing it. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so if I, I know if I need to hear it, then others need to hear it too. And so I just, I love being able to put that stuff up. Plus I'm a writer and I'm prolific to begin with. So it's, it, it's perfect.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I found you and I just loved your content immediately. I saw you were spinning and into fitness, this is the perfect combination. People don't embrace this enough. Um, We've really appreciated having you on our show. Before we wrap up, just would like to see if you could give us five actionable steps that our listeners who are in the trauma recovery process could take to just stay grounded or healthy or to just see hope. Yeah, Um,
1: so I think first and foremost is to acknowledge what you've been through Mm-hmm. and understand that you're not alone,
0: mm-hmm.
1: like just you're normal, you're mm-hmm. a normal person experiencing an incredibly abnormal thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then two, that, there's help, there's hope, there's healing. Um, you know, we, we often hear about the disorders that come from trauma. Mm-hmm. We don't talk enough about the healing that happens too. Mm-hmm. just like you have post traumatic stress disorder. There's a thing called post traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. And it's this amazing place that you can get to that it's accessible for you. You might have to find it. You're on your own. You might have to cobble it together because everybody's recovery process and healing is different, uh, but it's there. Uh, I would say that, you know, is as, as simple as it is basics, water, sleep, mm-hmm. exercise mm-hmm. exercise for me, I would die without it. Like I, I and I, I know that sounds really extreme. Yes. I would, <laughs> I, I would, or I would be the biggest asshole on the planet. And, um, yes. I have to, my trauma shows up physically. And if I don't synthesize it properly, if I don't give it the space that it is begging for, I am not the best version of myself. Mm. And so I prioritize my exercise. It is the, fir- well, it's not the first thing I do when I wake up. I wake up, I take my vitamins because that's important too. Mm-hmm. And then I come in and I write, I do my my morning posts. And then I'm on my bike every day by 6.30 in the morning. Awesome. And, you know, I have, a, I have a group that holds me accountable and we're all texting. So we know we schedule our, our exercise the night before. We know what we're doing. It's So you also have to plan, right? Set yourself up for success. Um, be strategic, set alarms, do all the things that, that you can do. And there's resources, there's books, there's documentaries, there's movies, there's
0: websites, there's forums. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Empowered Rx. If you want to find us for more information or to understand more about our services, you can find us on Instagram at Empowered Rx, or you can join our free Facebook community filled with women who are all trying to get healthy and happy. To find that community, simply go to Facebook and search for the Empowered Rx community. Have a great day, you guys, and stay well.